Hi, my name is Jonathan McMeans. I'm one of the pastors here at Heights Baptist Church. Wanted to let you know that it is our desire to love and to lead all people to a new life with Christ. And one of the ways that we strive to do this is by posting weekly content on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. We have a podcast. And I wanted to let you know, if this is the first time that you found us, we would love to know that you were here. You could let us know by going to heightschurch.org connect and filling out our digital connect card. Again, I'm so glad that you found us and God bless. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 1. Uh, Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 1, I'm going to meet you there in a moment. You know, it, it doesn't happen at a lot of funerals that I do that this one thing happened. And it, it really took me back uh, when this happened because uh, a lot of times in funerals, there, there comes a point where uh, the family will maybe request that people stand up and share a testimony of a, of a loved one that has passed away. You know, share a story, share something that's encouraging. Many of you, have you been to funerals like that before where, you know, it's kind of like open mic uh, time. Has anybody, you know, slip up your hand. Have you been to those, right? Okay. You will agree with this statement. I have seen open mic time at funerals where, you know, they encourage you to say something nice about the, you know, the deceased, something that uh, you would like to share. I've seen that go really well. And then I've seen it not go well at all, right? Because Uncle Joe gets up there and he talks about his high school football career for 30 minutes and then doesn't mention the person who passed away, right? And so I've seen it go beautifully and then I've seen train wrecks happen, right? This happened at Scott Painter's funeral. And I have never done a funeral that this happened at uh, again. This, This one time this happened. During kind of open mic time, Scott was a deacon in our church in Pennsylvania. He had a tragic accident in which he passed away, I believe, about the age of 58. When the family requested, you know, any memories about Scott, eight people came to the front and one by one said, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ because Scott shared the gospel with me. I'm here today and I believe in Jesus because Scott shared the gospel with me. I'm going to heaven, and I have my sins forgiven because Scott shared the gospel with me. I've never been to a funeral before or after that that happened. See, I I think Scott remembered something in his life that we tend to forget as Christians, that Jesus Christ calls us to be a witness for him. You know, Love and Lead 2030 is our vision plan over the next seven years of how to get the gospel out to more people than we ever have in the history of our church. Last week, we talked about spiritual formation. See, all of our six initiatives are really built on biblical foundations. And we talk about spiritual formation, that the end goal of all of us is that we are making disciples. Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, we want people to be mature in Christ. We want them to be complete in Christ. So we want to make disciples. And that was part of spiritual formation. This morning, I want to talk to you about gospel saturation and how we saturate our area with the gospel. Now, gospel saturation, we've got a definition for you on the screen, can be defined this way, and this is the definition we came up with, is gospel saturation is wherein every man, woman, and child has access to the gospel in a language and a culture in which they understand. So what we desire as a church 
is that we saturate the gospel, so much, our area, so much with the gospel that every man, woman, and child has an opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ in a language, in a culture in which they understand. So think about gospel saturation maybe this way. This may kind of help you out with the visual picture. Uh, take, a, take a look at this picture. On, on, think about how ivy spreads on a house. You know, so just think about that house. At one point, you could have probably seen the, the walls were white. You know, you got the blue doors. But, but what's happened is that ivy has saturated the house, right? No longer can you see maybe the walls were white at some point on the side of that house. But now all you see is ivy, right? That's gospel saturation. That's a picture for you to say in our area, we want every man and woman and child to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel in a language and a culture in which they understand. You know, when you come into the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, what's happening here is this is 40 days after Jesus has resurrected from the grave. So he's died on the cross for our sin. They put him on a t- in a tomb. Three days later, he rose again. So Acts 1 takes place 40 days after that resurrection appearance. You pick up in verse 2, and it's Jesus who has appeared over time, those 40-day period, talking to the disciples. And, and look in verse 2, it says that he's been giving them commands through the Holy Spirit. Now, what has he been teaching them? What commands has he been giving them? Verse 3, as he's presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs and appearing to them during those 40 days, he's been talking specifically about the kingdom of God. Then in verses 4 and 5, he gives them the promise again of the Holy Spirit to come. And he's given that promise before. Hey, I'm about to go away, and when I go away, the Holy Spirit's coming. That's John chapter 14. Here in Acts 1, 40 days after that resurrection appearance, he's emphasizing again the kingdom of God's coming and the Holy Spirit's coming. Now let's pick up with their conversation in verse 6, and we listen in with Jesus and the disciples. Verse 6 in Acts chapter 1 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. When he said these things, verse 9, they were looking on and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of, the, out of their sight. This is what we call the ascension, where Christ is right now in heaven, seated by the right hand of God, waiting to come again. Verse 10, they were gazing into heaven, when, and, and then behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? This Jesus who is taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so Christ has now ascended to where he is in heaven, waiting to come again at the appointed time. But notice in verse 6 what happens. Because in verse 6, they ask a question of Jesus. Now, I know uh, as Bible readers, we're often very hard on the characters within the Bible because we think, come on, guys, don't you get this stuff, right? And sometimes we can be hard with the disciples. But remember this, they're living in the moment, and we have the whole story, right? We've got the whole story to read. They're in the moment. So get in the moment with them in verse 6. 
Because in verse 6, they ask a great theological question. Because they're thinking, wait a minute, we really know you're the Christ now. We really know you're the Messiah. We have seen you die on a cross. We've seen you come back from the grave. No question in our minds, you're the Messiah. Then Joel chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 36 often talks about the coming of the kingdom and the Holy Spirit coming hand in hand. What's Jesus been teaching them? About the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit coming. So they're thinking in verse 6, aha, this is it. Right? You're about to restore the nation of Israel. You're the Messiah. You're the one. You're, you're about to get these ugly Romans out of here. The nation's back. Here's your kingdom. Why? Because you've been talking about your kingdom, and now you've been talking about the Holy Spirit. And this is what we learned from the Old Testament. Those two things come hand in hand. And so their question in verse 6 is a great theological question. They're like, well, is this time? Is this it? Is this now? And then Jesus responds this way in verse 7. And sometimes God responds in our lives that troubles us, right? We don't always like the answers to all the questions we get to give to God. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, no. He doesn't say, yes. What does he say? He says this in verse 7. That's my father's business. I'm about to tell you your business. Right? Hey, God the Father has all that worked out. Don't worry about that. Here's what I want you to do. That's his business when the kingdom's coming. Your business is this. Verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses. I love that part of the promise in verse 8 that when the Holy Spirit comes, we receive power. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit resides in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Now, here's something we need to remember. It's the same Holy Spirit, right? They didn't get Holy Spirit A, and we get Holy Spirit B. <laughs> they didn't get more of the Spirit than we get the Spirit. We get the same Holy Spirit as the disciples. So when the Holy Spirit has come into your life as a believer in Jesus Christ, you now have power to be a witness for God. You now have power that you need to be a witness. So it's this, anytime God calls you to do something, God equips you to do it. But here's what happens. God often calls us to do something and you are like me, and we give excuses to why we can't do it, right? I mean, this is church. You can nod your head, yes, yeah, because I'm not the only one in this room. And if I am, you know how to pray for me now, and this will just be an open confession, all right? But I'm going to take a guess. You're a lot like me, and when God says, I want you to do this, the excuses start coming. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the burning bush. Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Moses is out. If you guys remember a little bit about the story of Moses, he's an orphan uh, that gets picked up, raised in Pharaoh's court. 
uh, as an adult, realizes that he's in Hebrew, gets into a scuffle with an Egyptian, kills the Egyptian. He's on the run for 40 years out in the desert as a fugitive, right? Not coming back to Egypt. He comes back to Egypt. He's done. Right? He's, he's going to get arrested. He's dead. So he's out on the run 40 years. As he's tending sheep one day, he notices off in the distance, there is a bush that is on fire, but is not burning up, right? How many of us would go, oh man, I ain't checking that out, right? No, we're pulling out our phones, we're streaming this thing, we're videoing this, we've got to go see the bush that is on fire that is not burning up. Makes his way over, God says, okay, Moses, I've got a plan for you. I've got a mission for you. Here's what you're going to go do. You're going to march back into Egypt. You're going to confront Pharaoh, and you're going to tell Pharaoh, look, I know you've enslaved millions of, of the Hebrew people. I know this is your workforce. I know this is your economy, but you're going to tell those people it's time to go, right? And you're going to free them all. And Moses goes, good plan. I'm on board, right? Moses goes, awesome. You got it. Where do I sign up and start? No. What does Moses do? He does what you do and I do. And he starts listing out excuses. And go home today, just a little homework. Read Exodus chapters 3 and 4. And you're going to see all these excuses that Moses gives to God that he can't do it. I'm going to highlight a few of them. First one is this. He's like, I'm inadequate. I can't do this. God, I, there's no way I can go and confront the most powerful man in all of history right now and let him say, release all the Hebrew people. I, I can't do that. I'm inadequate. God comes back and says, I'm going to be with you. Don't worry, I'll be with you. Second excuse. Moses says, look, I'm supposed to march back in front of the Hebrew people and go, hey guys, got a plan. God gave it to me. He, he appeared as a bush that was on fire, but it didn't burn up. Details later, right? But here's the plan. We're just going to march out of here. Right? I'm going to be your leader. Right? And Moses is thinking, there's no way they're going to listen to me. God's going to say, here's what you tell them. You tell them the I am sent you. Third excuse, my favorite excuse. Moses goes, hey, I'm off the hook. I've got the speech impediment, and I don't talk real well in front of people. So you pick the wrong guy, right? I'll go get Tom over there in the field. He'll come over to the bush and check it out. You, you pick Tom. I don't talk well in front of people. And God goes, don't worry. Your brother Aaron, he's real good at that. So Aaron's going to do all the talking for you. Every time God calls you to do something, God equips you to do it. You and I have the power available to us from the Holy Spirit to obey God and to be a witness for him in any situation we're in. You know, there's a lot of situations that I get into where I walk into a room, I walk into a home, and I think, I don't know what in the world to say. I mean, I, I've been in families' homes over the years where they have tragically lost a member of their family. I don't know what to say in those moments sometimes. I've been in families' homes where they've gotten a terrible diagnosis. I don't know what always to say. But here's what I've learned. Holy Spirit, will you give me the words to say in those moments? 
And I can't always explain how the Holy Spirit does this. But the more we rely upon the Holy Spirit, the more effective we are on mission with God. I mean, there's, there's times that I'll preach a sermon and I'll come home and at lunch, man, I'm peacocking, right? I'm thinking that was the greatest sermon ever. And lunch is like, did you guys hear the illustration? Boy, that was perfect. Did you get the joke? Man, it landed, right? That explanation, whew, that was on point, right? And guess what? That's the message I get like no feedback from. No text messages, no emails, nothing. And I'm thinking, were y'all listening to the same thing I was? I mean, that was great. Then there are times, and this happens more than that time, then there are times I feel like I am preaching and it is going so horribly bad, I want to mid-sermon say, bow your heads and then run off stage. And I'm thinking, nobody's getting this. I'm at lunch. I'm sad. I'm like spelling out my resignation letter in my French fries. I mean, it's just like <laughs> that had to be the absolute worst thing. And that's where the text messages come rolling in. That's where the emails come. That's where the phone call comes. Man, what you said, boy, that, that really helped. <laughs> What you said really blessed, and that, that really encouraged me. And I'm sitting there thinking, were you listening to the same thing? I, what? Okay. <laughs> and all I've learned is this. The less we rely on us, the more we rely on him, the more effective we are. And that's what the power of the Holy Spirit is in Acts 8. God's saying, I'm going to make you guys effective in what I call you to do because you have the Holy Spirit. Now, notice what he's going to call them to do. He's going to call them to be witnesses. He's going to call them to be witnesses. Throughout the book of Acts, the word witness is used about 15 times. It's used as a noun in some points and then also as a verb. And so if you think about being a witness in your life, you are a witness all day long, all the time, every day about something. A witness can be someone who observes something. Right? I, I witnessed that happen. And then a witness can be somebody who tells someone what has happened. So you witness to people all the time on social media, whether you post on Snapchat or TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you're constantly witnessing to someone to say, here's something that maybe I've seen that now I'm commenting on. At work, you witness to your coworkers all the time. Hey, did you see that episode of that TV show the other day? Man, I watched this movie. Here's what it was about. We witness to our kids all the time. You see one of them hit the other kid, and you witness to that one like, hey, you need to find Jesus right now because you're about to meet him if you keep hitting your brother, right? right? So we do this over and over and over again in our lives. Constantly, we see things as a witness, and we tell other people as a witness what we saw. This is what the biblical call is for us, to be witnesses. We have experienced Christ in our lives. We've seen God do things in our lives. Now we tell people what God has done. Now notice the scope of that. All right, so we got power within our lives, the Holy Spirit, to help us do what God calls us to do. We are witnesses of what he has done. And here's the scope. 
He says in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus is basically telling them this. You are going to go out and you're going to saturate the area with the gospel. Close to home and far from home, it's going to saturate. You know what's amazing to me is how this works, if you kind of know a little bit about church history, is church historians estimate by the year 300, there are 3.5 million Christians in the Roman Empire. Now stop and think about that. Something that started with 12. Acts chapter 1, you've got about 120. At the end of Acts chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes, Peter stands up, preaches a sermon. You've got 3,000 followers of Jesus. And by the year 300, 3.5 million Christians in the Roman Empire. That's no internet. That's no Facebook. That's no cars. That's no airplanes. That's none of the technology that we have or resources we have today. What happened? They knew they had power. They went out and witnessed, and God saturated the area with the gospel. Do you realize today we have more resources at our disposal? We have more technology at our disposal to get the gospel out than we ever have in the history of Christianity. But what are we missing? A lot of times we're missing relying on the Holy Spirit's power when we work, when we're witnesses. And so what we're looking at as a church is to say, how do we saturate our area with the gospel over the next seven years so every man, woman, and child has an opportunity to hear and respond to the work of Jesus Christ in a language and a culture in which they understand? And so let me give you the next three initiatives of what we seek to do as a church over the next seven years. The first one is this, in saturation, we want to baptize 200 people. We want to baptize 200 people in the next seven years. This is going to come through your personal evangelism efforts. This is going to happen because you are going to share the gospel, relying on the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you, getting the word out through personal relationships, and we are going to see people come to know Christ. All right? So we have what we call here at Heights a 4 by 4 plan. A 4 by 4 plan is this. You find four people you know in your life that don't follow Jesus. You pray for them. You share the gospel with them. You invite them. Right? So you're inviting them to church to hear the word. You're sharing the word with them. You're praying with them. If you don't know four, you know three, great. Start with three. Don't know two, start with two. Don't know one, then great. Pray that you'll at least come to know one non-Christian in your life that you can start being a witness to. So over the next seven years, 200 people that we're going to baptize as a church because you are going to share the gospel with them. Over the last five years, by God's grace and your efforts, we have baptized 118 people in five years. Amen? I mean, that, that's something to celebrate because we had that whole big pandemic in the middle of that. Right? And so we stop and think, 200 people, 200 new, brand new Christians over the next seven years. The second initiative we're looking at is starting a Hispanic ministry here at Heights in the next seven years. Now, when I say Hispanic ministry, I know a lot of you already are thinking about questions about how is that going to work? 
What is that going to look like? What does that entail? And listen, I want you to know we are always welcome to dialogue with you. We're always welcome with your questions. I love questions. I love being able to talk through things with you. I'm a collaborator at heart, and so more opinions I just love. But let me answer your question right now. When I say start a Hispanic ministry within the next seven years, you're thinking, what does that mean, and what does that look like? Here's my answer to that. I have no idea. (laughs) Honest truth, I have no clue. I have no clue what that means. I don't. I don't. But I know this. In our area, 48% of our population is non-white. So 48% of the Alvin Manville, Iowa Colony area is non-white. I know this. In my heart, I want 48% of people in our area to have the gospel in their language, in their own culture, in which they can understand and respond to Jesus. I know this, that God very rarely or if ever in the Bible gives you A, B, C, and D of the plan and then asks you to obey. Often what God does in the Bible, he gives you plan A, step A. When you take step A, I'll give you B. When you take B, I'll give you C. When you take C, I'll give you D. So I have no clue what that's going to look like. I have no idea where to start. I have more questions than I have answers. But I know this in my heart. If we want to effectively reach people around us, then we will reflect more on a Sunday morning of the diversity of our community than we do right now. And I know in my heart there are people that need the gospel. And so we will just... By faith, go, Lord, we know this is your heart too, and uh, you're just going to have to give us the plan. Our yes is on the table for that. Next initiative is this. Baptize 200 people in the next seven years. Start a Hispanic ministry. And then number three, plant four churches in the next seven years. We want to plant four churches in the next seven years. Again, those may not always be English-speaking churches because we want to see the gospel go out more and more in our area. We want people to be able to respond to the gospel in a language and a culture in which they understand. And so we need to start new churches. Now, here's the question I get anytime we talk about church planning, and it's a great question. It's a fine question. So let's just go on and answer the one that's already in your head. So thank you for asking it, because I know you're asking it in your mind because you're giving me the look, all right? Okay, you're, you're giving me that look you give me sometimes, and that's great. That's fine. Ask your question, but mentally it's already there. Do you ever have a parent that had the look, by the way? Just digressing, all right? My dad had the look when I would get in trouble. There was three levels to the look. The first level was, boy, you, you need to calm down. Level two was, boy. See, I lost, some of you, like when you got in trouble, your parents said your whole, fir- you know, your whole name, right? My mom would say, David Lee Peoples Jr., you need to stop. When my, I got in trouble with my dad, I lost all my name. He just went to the pronoun, boy, right? That's, that was it. I wasn't David Lee Peoples Jr. anymore. It was just boy. It wasn't even a son. It was boy, right? So level one, boy, you need to calm down. Level two, boy, I'm getting serious. Level three of the look was this. You better run, right? Just run. Which then if you ran, that was a, you know, that was a whole nother story. So some of you are giving me that look, right? You, you just give me that look. Like, why in the world do we need to start new churches? Great question. Let me ask it, answer it in a practical sense, 
in a spiritual sense. Let me start with the practical sense. If you take the Alvin, Iowa, Colony, Manville area, you look at those three zip codes, there are 87,000 people around us today. So 87,000 people make up our surrounding area. We have been able to identify through our research 45 churches in the Alvin, Iowa, Colony, Manville area. Now, when I use the word church, I'm using the word very loosely there. These are not all Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Jesus is the only way to salvation church. This is going to include your Mormons, it's going to include your Latter-day Saints. So 45 churches in our area with 87,000 people surrounding them. Research shows on a national level that 65% of all churches in the United States average under 100 people on a Sunday morning. Just stop and think about it. 65% of every church in America, whether it's Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, you know, Episcopals, Presbyterian, 65% of all churches in the United States average fewer than 100 people on a Sunday morning. Research is also going to show you 65% to 80%, depending on who you read, of all churches in the United States are plateaued or declining. So even if you just grow a little bit on a, you know, from year to year, you are doing better than almost 80% of all churches within the United States. Last year, in the Alvin area alone, we had 4,000 people move into our area. 4,000 people moved into our area last year alone. Now, what is considered a mega church is any church over 2,000. So just stop and think about this for a second. You had two mega churches move into our area last year alone. You have 87,000 people. You have 45 churches. That would mean this. If we desired and we said, hey, we want to see everybody in a church on a Sunday morning worshiping God, then all 45 of those churches have to average more than 2,000 people on a Sunday morning. All 45 churches have to become a mega church to reach everybody. Why do we need to plant more churches? Do we not have enough? You just stop and just think about that from a practical standpoint. But let me give you a spiritual lens to look through that. 87,000 people in our area, and we know this biblically, that all those folks are created by God in his image. And 87,000 people have sin against God. You know this because you're in Walmart, right? You know this because you're driving around town. You're like, yeah, that's, that's not hard biblically to understand. Not trying to be offensive, but it is, right? Romans 3.23, we've all fallen short in, of the glory of God. 87,000 people around us created in God's image, sinned against God. The Bible tells us that when we sin against him, we are separated from a personal relationship with him. And the wage that we earn because of that sin is death. We earn God's punishment. We earn God's uh, you know, wrath in our lives. We earn hell because of our sin against him. And some people think, well, why is it fair that we would be in eternity in hell when we've only sinned 60 years in this life? Well, no, no. You have to understand who you're sinning against. You're sinning against a holy God. You're, you're breaking and rebelling against a God who is perfect in all ways. So 87,000 people created in God's image sinned against him on their way to hell. But God says, you know what? I don't desire that for anyone. No one do I desire to be in hell. I didn't create hell for you. 
And I don't want you there. My desire is for all to come to salvation in Christ Jesus. And that's why God steps into our lives and says, I'm making a way for you. I'm sending my son to you. I'm sending my son to be a mediator between you and me. And the Bible tells us that this man, Jesus, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John chapter 1, 14, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And now this is this Jesus who can be our high priest, who can be our mediator, who sympathizes with us in all of our weaknesses, tempted like we are with sin, but never sin. So when he dies on a cross, he takes all of your sin upon himself. And he dies that perfect sacrificial death, sinless on your behalf. Takes that punishment and wrath that deserved for you, and he takes it on himself in your place. And God says this, that in order for people to be saved, they have to hear the gospel. They have to hear that good news I just presented. They have to believe. How are they going to hear? It's going to be through someone telling them. How are they going to hear? It's going to be through disciples saturating the area. So every man, woman, and child has an opportunity to hear and respond to the good work of Jesus Christ in the language and culture in which they understand. So do I know how we're going to plant four churches in the next seven years? Do I know how we're going to start a Hispanic ministry? Do I know how we're going to do all these things? No, not yet. But I know this. I know a God who has an answer to every question we have. I know this. I know a God who has a desire for all 87,000 people to come to know Jesus Christ. And I know this, God's working already in our area, that God is on the move, and what God wants us to do is just join him in that work. And that's what being a witness for Jesus Christ is all about. It's just saying, Lord, I know this is what you want. I know this is your heart for these folks. I just want to join you in what you're going to do. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to commit over the next seven years for us as Heights Baptist Church to saturate our area with the good news of Jesus Christ so every man, woman, and child in their own language, in their own culture has an opportunity to hear this good news, believe in Christ, have their sin forgiven, and be on the way to heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love. I thank you for a call that you gave not only to the disciples, but to us as well, to be your witnesses. Lord, we have a, a, a call, a mandate to be able to do this because what we want to do is line our heart up with you. And Lord, we know today there are so many people that their eyes are not on Jesus. Lord, they are focused on someone else or something else that can bring them hope, they think. They're looking in other directions for forgiveness of sin and salvation and hope in their lives. But we know in your word, that comes in a person, in a relationship in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that my commitment, the commitment of those watching online today, the commitment of those in this room, is we help people turn their eyes to Jesus. We help people turn their eyes to Christ. Will you take a moment right where you are, in your own way, in your own words, and you think about those four people on your four-by-four four plan. 
they don't know Christ, they're not following Jesus. And when you take a moment just in your own way, in your own words, and when you pray for their salvation, will you pray that they turn their eyes to Christ Jesus today? We ask the Lord to empower you to be that witness, to help them turn their eyes to Christ. Will you right now in prayer make a commitment to be on mission with Christ? Say, Lord, in our area, there's so much lostness, so much work to do. Help me be one who turns people's eyes to Christ. As you're praying about that, you're praying about that loved one, that husband, that wife, that grandchild, that grandparent, that friend, whoever it is. I want to just invite you right now, whether you're in your home, you're in this room, to start a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We do this because Christ says, follow me, come to me. When you come to Christ, you find forgiveness of your sin. You find hope today that lasts for all of eternity. You find new life in him. And the Bible says we just, in our heart, we believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sin and he rose from the grave on the third day. And we call out to him. We place our faith and trust in him. And so maybe today in your, you're just saying, hey, I, I want to know Christ as my savior. You can just simply pray along with me. And, and this prayer is nothing magical at all. It's just words to express what maybe is on your heart. Say, dear God, Today, I'm ready to start a relationship with Jesus. I believe he died on a cross for my sin. I believe he rose from the grave. I turn from my sin and I turn my eyes to Christ. I'm ready to follow Jesus. Father, we thank you for the way you are going to use us to saturate our area with the gospel. We know that is your heart and your desire. And so Lord, where we lack resources, we pray you provide. We lack answers, we pray you give them. And Lord, we do this for the glory of your name. We pray in Christ's name, amen.